Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 185. My name is Irvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm hanging in. How about you? I'm doing all right. Uh, NHL season is, is fast approaching. Yes, we are seeing those sleepy wake-up signs of the league returning to action in terms of uh, preseason camps getting started, preseason games, prospect tournaments. Um, we aren't desperate enough to engage directly with the prospect tournament. Um, yeah, I, so, I mean, I saw there, there are many people who are, who are, you know, focusedly watching this prospects tournament, including a lot of people at our site. I, I remember I logged into the PVP Slack once and like there was a long conversation about three guys I had never heard of and could not pick out of a police lineup. And I would consider myself obviously a pretty involved fan. We, we are not those people. Yeah, I've watched the Prospect Tournament in the past, and I'll tell you what happens, at least if you're me. You see a player, they perform really well against really dubious competition, and you talk yourself into them. I did this with Fedor Gordiev a couple of years back. He looked really good in the Prospect Tournament. He has not done a hell of a lot since. So, yeah, I, I think that it's fascinating, but unless you have a very keen scout's eye... I don't know that the level is high enough to get too much from it, but yeah. Anyway, so we won't inflict that on you. Instead, we'll talk about some more directly relevant leaf issues. Right. So there, there's a few, I guess, major storylines that pertain to the Leafs as we enter into this training camp. Uh, I think the biggest among them is the Rasmus Sand- Sandin situation. Mm-hmm. So... Sandine at this point has not signed uh, unless something's happened in the last five minutes and it looks like this stalemate will kind of continue into the preseason mm-hmm. so I mean the the fundamental issue here the Leafs don't really have a lot of cap room obviously um, we, we kind of clearly need to make a trade we're not currently cap compliant unless we can LTIR someone. There's basically no way that I can see to ice a reasonable roster while being under the cap. And when I say reasonable, I mean a, not a 20-person roster. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 pre-peel rosters are kind of dubious, e- even for a team like Toronto, which has the advantage of having like the Marlies right next door. Yeah, I don't think the Leafs will do that if they feel they have any other choice. So, yeah. Right. So, with Sandine, where he's currently at in the depth chart is sort of a bit of an odd spot, right? Because there are a bunch of left-shooting defensemen who could conceivably be above him, namely Riley, Muzzin, and Jordana. Yeah. Um, I think part of the dispute that Sandine has had with the organization, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, is that he's played well enough to earn a showing, and they have gone right ahead not giving him much space to make that showing. He showed well last year when he got to play, got injured, came back from injury, and found that he had lost his job. Whenever Sandin has played, he's played relatively well. You look at things like his isolated threat on HockeyViz or his RAPM, they look like that of a solid NHL defender. Um, in fact, on, on hockey viz, he is like he appears to be above average in terms of play driving. We know he has some utility on uh, on the power play. Mm-hmm. We know that 
his in-zone defensive work is not his strongest suit, but he's excellent at making you know these short, quick reads to get out of the zone, which is very, very important. So this all looks like he should really be a player that we count on in a somewhat, you know, important role going forward. At least that that is the hope. If they at least believe in him, they that would be what they want to happen. But thus far in the NHL, he has basically done all this, you know, admittedly impressive stuff and getting impressive results in third pair of minutes where he generally faces bottom half opposing forwards and is managed quite carefully. Of course, things like Ice to Threat and RIPM attempt to capture that, um, but we know they don't always do that perfectly. It's just very, very hard to do. So there is still some uncertainty, a, a lot of uncertainty about like, okay, how well does Rasmus Sandin um, scale up to a higher level in the lineup? Mm-hmm. Right? How much? How much does? How much do his strengths translate? How much are his weaknesses exacerbated? You could see a world where his relative lack of like elite athleticism and strength really hurts him as he gets higher up in the lineup where opposing forwards are better able to take advantage of mistakes. Right. Um, Sandin has always stood out to me as a very smart player, a very good passing defenseman. Um, to my eye test, I think he's legit among the best playmaking D the Leafs have, maybe second only to Riley, um, arguably in that respect. But I think the way that things have worked out here he keeps getting displaced from a job by someone who fits a bit better. Like, if you look on the second pairing, well, the Leafs have Jake Muzzin, presumably, to play left side there. And Muzzin plays a big physical defensive game um, that might complement Sandine well if he played the other side, but that Sandine can't really replace, putting aside that the Leafs have shown no inclination to ask Jake Muzzin to waive his no-trade clause. And then Mark Giordano... Uh, was a good deadline acquisition, and he took a contract that was so good the Leafs almost couldn't not sign him to it. Even at age 38, the value on what he's bringing at $800,000 makes it among the, at least superficially, best contracts in the NHL. Like we talked about evolving hockey's contract projections, Mark Giordano was way under the line in terms of how much value they think he's bringing, even accounting for the fact that he's getting quite up there in age. I think all of these choices are defensible in and of themselves, but they mean that Rasmus Sandin doesn't have a guaranteed job, doesn't have a ton of cap space allocated to him, and that the Leafs feel almost compelled to squeeze him, but I think there may be even more to it than that. I think the Leafs are trying to use this moment of max leverage on Sandine to get term on him. At least some. And that's my guess. But right that would, now... Sorry. That would make sense. You know, I was going to say that, that that would make sense because, as you said, I just wanted to really hammer home. Sandine has zero leverage. He is not was not arbitration eligible this year. Um, so his leverage was an offer sheet. At that point, That le- this leverage has like almost completely expired because you would think if he was going to sign an offer sheet, it would have cultivated it already. But yeah. Yes, and you wonder what was being offered or mooted or whether anyone had any interest, but Rasmus Sandin's agent made a statement to the press in mid-August saying basically we're getting no progress here. And 
the whole thing read to me as basically like, send us an offer sheet. At least to give us something to bargain with. And we don't know if anyone responded to that call for offers, as I interpreted it. But if so, Sandine hasn't signed any of them. And it hasn't been enough to leverage Dupas into making a deal. Well, if Sandine doesn't get an offer sheet, he has no arb rights, his only other option is to go back to Sweden. Or to play in Europe somewhere else. Um, I also think it might be a little bit relevant that Sandine's agent is Louis Gross, whom you might remember from the William Nylander negotiation. Um... Nylander, as you know, returned to Europe for the first couple of months of the season before signing at the almost literal last minute. And I do wonder, you know, I don't want to overestimate the personal factor in a business negotiation, but I wonder if neither side is willing to blink too early this time around after that experience where they dragged out to the end. Um, Dubas has been very, I would say, uh obstinate in this negotiation from what we've seen you know like his statements to the press someone mentioned the possibility of an offer sheet and he basically said yeah good that would resolve things a lot quicker for me suppose better late than never yeah Yeah, and this is the thing for a guy whose main weakness as a general manager is generally considered to be that he didn't drive hard enough bargains on certain contracts um all of a sudden he's really found his spine i guess with the guy who was his first first-round draft pick as the general manager, a player that, by all accounts, the organization really likes and presumably is trying to secure for term. But he's been absolutely fearless in just saying, yeah, we're going to go to the wall on this and sign or don't sign, but we are not going to take a deal that we don't feel sets us up for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I think it's it's sort of tricky because there's this tension between the Leafs probably do like Sandine, mm-hmm. and yet they have not at all really prioritized getting information about him in a context besides the Travis Dermott role. Mm-hmm. He he played I think maybe a few scattered games in the top four, not enough that I feel would feel comfortable making any sort of declaration about his ability to do that. They've they've kind of as you said acquired people above him, which were both which were good moves, right? Like J- the Jake Muzzin acquisition. I guess I forget that the actual timing of that was like before or after Sandine was even drafted. Um, but like the Jake Muzzin acquisition was like a clearly good move. The Jake Muzzin resigning, I think, was a clearly good move because Jake Muzzin was slash is good. Um, his struggles last year were were definitely concerning, but he had a solid playoffs and. I think his career has deserved some benefit of the doubt to see, like, okay, let, let's let's see if this is for real, or let's see if you know the Jake Muzzin award comes back. The Giordano signing and trade, as you said, were was was smart, right? It, it, the contract is too good to not sign. Having more defensive depth than someone like Giordano, who is clearly still a, a solid NHL player, is again very very helpful. So as a result, you know, the Leafs have kind of arguably left some opportunities on the table by not trusting him more like you know you could imagine a world where Sandine plays higher up in the lineup and performs well there and then that lets you capture a lot of excess value because now you're paying a guy very little money to perform an important role um 
And maybe that even gives you more information. Like, I don't think that this would have happened and this is a completely moot point now, but maybe that gives you more information of, hey, maybe this guy can like replace a lot of what Morgan Riley does. We don't have to sign Riley to, to the contract we signed Riley to. I don't think that con- that Riley contract is a bad deal in the sense of it being out of line with the market. I think Riley would have essentially gotten that or more um, had, he, had he hit unrestricted free agency. But mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's a incredibly efficient contract either right yeah i mean you come back to the same old thing of who can do what morgan riley does as well as morgan riley does it and Mm -hmm. as much as he does show defensive weaknesses i think there are things that he does that are very very hard for anyone else to match including rasmus andin right who i think is comparable as a passer but not in other respects so yeah and, and and i think that's probably you know, essentially what the Leafs have said, like they, they didn't have confidence they could replace Riley from within or didn't want to. And I think mm-hmm. that's a reasonable thing to say because it's not like Sandine has given us a ton of inclination or a ton of indication that he would be able to do that, but he also really hasn't been given the opportunity to give that indication either, right? And this is, we, we, we talked, I think, a, a long time ago about how a team like the Red Wings, back where they were still in their playoff streak, had kind of left some value on the table by over-ripening some prospects in the minors, and they were quite good when they came up. Mm-hmm. Right. But they were older than, than most other prospects, and there was probably some times where the Red Wings could have brought someone up earlier and they would have helped out the team a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Right? I think there's some level of that involved here, too, and I don't think there's an obvious answer. It's like, oh, here's the best way to do it, or here, like, you should always bring them up early, or you should always, like, over-ripen them, or, or do whatever. It's, like, very, very case and context specific, but there are trade-offs to both, right? And, and the advantage of the advantage of letting, of, I guess, not promoting ahead uh, of schedule is that it's less risky. You're, you're generally playing known quantities in those positions, uh, but you're foregoing the chance for extremely high upside of hey we had this guy who just popped out of nowhere and turns out he can play as a top four defenseman and now we don't have to spend the assets to get another defenseman or another depth defenseman or we don't have to re-sign a guy to another contract because we we found this guy who was in our system and he did all of that for us yes which is exactly the kind of value the Leafs would dream of in their perpetual cap crunch uh, yeah and you can say look I know what Justin Hall is and I don't I think sometimes Justin Hall gets a little bit underrated, although it swings back and forth seemingly every couple of months. Um, he's a 4-5 defenseman. Same as ever. He's not perfect. He's fine. Um, it's not that hard for me to envision Rasmus Sandin outperforming that, but I don't know. He might not do as well in the minutes that Justin Hall does play, which can be pretty demanding. Especially, like, right. na- yeah, now in the context of having to do that on his offside. Yeah, exactly. And so for a team that is trying to contend every single year, it makes sense to go with known quantities. It's just it's led to this weird situation where the Leafs are now trying to, I think, get term, get some security on a player they don't have a ton of higher level information on. And the player might reasonably say, one, I would like a one year where you give me an opportunity and then I show what I'm worth and I make a hell of a lot more money. Or two, um, I probably don't know if I want to be in this organization. Now, I don't know how far down this road he's gone. And as we've said, he either hasn't gotten an offer sheet or he's gotten them and he hasn't chosen to sign them. But, you know, 
there comes a point on the horizon where you start to be like, is this going to get worked out? And we're not there yet. Lots of RFAs remain unsigned, including some more significant than Sandine, particularly Jason Robertson. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, you've started to wonder here. I know Sabres Kevin, who uh, we've talked to online and on this pod in the past, has said he thinks the Leafs have gone about this kind of strangely. That Sandine is a potentially very valuable player for them going forward, one of their few hopes to secure excess value. And they've suddenly decided to play super hardball with him and to stack players in front of him. And I do wonder if if a lot of this is governed by the fact that Mark Giordano kind of fell into Dubas's lap mm-hmm. uh, around the trade deadline and then with an extension that he, he couldn't not take. Um, d- definitely, I don't think that this is where Dubas would have wanted this to be a year ago. It's just uh, a bunch of things that kind of fell into place for him, led him to have six good defensemen and made it so that he doesn't really feel like he needs to go and chase down Rasmus Sandin in this negotiation, that he can wait for him to to come around. And in the case where Sandin does sign a one-year, and I think that's basically where it's or it's heading simply because I don't see what other options Sandine really like. I, the Leafs may try and get him to turn, but I think push comes to shove. They, they would want Sandine to be their their seventh defenseman mm-hmm. and, and provide some defensive depth. But like in the event that the Leafs give him a one year, it's still not an amazing situation for Sandine because he's probably coming in seventh on the depth chart. There will be injuries, of course, but it would look at least from afar that the most the median outcome of the season for Sandine is get into a bunch of games primarily as the third pair left defenseman maybe play some pp2 and then not really show anything that we don't already know and that doesn't exactly help you build an arb case remember two things get you paid in arbitration points and time on ice yes and at present rasmus Sandine doesn't seem like he has a huge chance to rack those up Uh, He was used on the second power play at times in the past. However, right now, Mark Giordano was once again present and can Mm -hmm. run a second unit power play. And also the second unit power play has gotten significantly worse because there's no Jason Spezza. Yeah, although you're telling me you don't believe in the magic of Kali Yarncroak (laughs) to fill that void? (laughs) Kali Yarncroak had three years where he was an above average shooter in the NHL. That is totally the basis of a helpful PP2. (laughs) And now this can be the fourth year. Who else is even on PP2? Jesus. Is it Eng- is Engvall going to be on there? Oh, hell yeah, Engvall is going to be on there. Yeah, I, I mean, what you have on, on Unit 1 is Big 4 and presumably still Morgan Riley. Yeah. Um, and then second unit, Kerfoot, Bunting, Engvall, Engvall Bunting. Kerfoot. Yeah. Um, player of your choice. Yeah, Yarncroak. Yeah. Yikes. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the point is PP2 is not going to get a ton of time and they're not going to be that effective when they do mm-hmm. right because i mean jason spezza was genuinely still a top quality nhl power play quarterback last year absolutely like you know his mobility ceased to be an issue once he got set up and then his vision became the dominant presence on the ice which he still had that didn't really fade at all for him so yeah um it's weird how it's come to this point, and yet every single step along the road, you can sort of see why it happened, why it made sense. Mm-hmm. I don't love the fact that this 
this seems less certain to be a long-term relationship than I thought it was going to be a few months back. I'm not guaranteeing anything. And, you know, the truth about contract negotiations is that there can be hurt feelings, but often people have a lot of time to get over them once the contract is signed. That's also the helpful part of having an agent because they can be like a... Yeah. Like, Louis Gross presumably is not reporting every mean thing Kyle Dubas says, to, you know, or yeah. like, you know, that, and that's why, like, when players represent themselves, it can be, like, harsher because, you know, the, a, a team will have to sort of, or may have to say harsh things to the player's face without, like, an intermediary to soften it. I've always thought that that was sort of the, the flip side of our hearings. You know, we have heard in the past that mm-hmm. very uh, venomous ARB hearings have destroyed relationships between teams and players even when a deal gets signed for a year because in the arbitration hearing you hear everything they say (laughs) and it's reported back to you whereas now the truth is Sandin can kind of go about doing what he's going to do and he'll check his text messages from Lewis Gross but yeah um, he doesn't have to hear Kyle Dubas saying look he's a seventh defenseman we don't know he hasn't proven anything yet quick sign on the dotted line um I do think that the Leafs really should not let this get away from them. I don't think that Dubas is going to. Mm-hmm. And as you said, I think if he has to, he'll say, okay, fuck it, one year. Um, Sandine is one of the few genuine potential players who can uh, establish himself as an above-average NHL defenseman, like in the Leafs org. I think that... Um, he still has more potential. I think he has more than Liljegren, even though Liljegren has been cast as, like, the good boy in recent discourse. Well, cause, yeah, because he signed a nice two-year deal. That was team-friendly. Yeah. I mean, look, everyone, you know, feel how you got to feel about this stuff. Try not to take contract negotiations personally, would be my yeah. advice. But also Liljegren, yeah, like, I don't know that he's actually established that he can do more than Sandine at this point. But he's, he's a right shot, and he can play on a very good pairing with Mark Giordano, which is to his credit. I think he's going to be an NHL defenseman long term. But I think Sandin was widely recognized to have more pure talent not that long ago, and I think that people have started to forget that as they've gotten annoyed. He, he is a good player, and I suspect that Sandin has more second-pairing potential even now than Liljegren does. I could be wrong, but I think I'd agree with that. Just with the caveat that, like, Lilligren's handedness makes it a little bit e- like, at least on this team, makes it a little bit easier to slot him in there. And I guess something that we'd be remiss not to mention is that, you know, this can all change if, for example, Justin Hall gets traded, because then Sandine does have a more or less guaranteed roster spot. Mm-hmm. It would have to be on the right side, most likely, um, and it would require some some other reshuffling, but it's a possibility that 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 happens whereas you know i mean the obvious when we talk about trades it's it's the two names that we've talked about for like seemingly since 2004 or whatever like it's kerfoot and hall have been in trade rumors forever i hope they're renting yeah at this point i the thing is is that we know that they've dangled justin hall on the trade market before and with apparently no response that they considered worth pursuing I don't know if that's improved. I don't know where that's at now. I would have expected someone would say, okay, yeah, I'll take Justin Hall for a third. You know, he's been a good hard minutes right defenseman, even if he wasn't driving his pairing. He cost $2 million. It's a one year. Like, I think that if Dubas really wanted to unload him, 
I suspect there would be a market, I guess. So either he's not that keen to do it, or I'm wrong about his value. But I keep thinking that if they wanted to open a spot for Sandine and were willing to do it on the right, they would have done it by now. So, but I don't know. they have to trade someone, right? Like they literally <laughs> cannot sign people otherwise, or cannot sign Sandine otherwise. I mean, there's also this somebody will get injured. So you uh, just yeah. like wait out Sandine, hope for an injury, put that person on. The thing, the thing worth mentioning though, uh, Katya's talked about this a lot. Like having to always put people on LTIR does like really hurt you because like then if someone gets hangnail and needs to miss a game, well they can't miss a game because if you're just on regular IR, you get no cap relief for that. They have to miss. They have to go on LTIR, which I think is like minimum ten games, twenty four days, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, it's just like a pain. Yeah, I, I mean. To be clear, it's not the best way to operate if you can remotely avoid it. Mm -hmm. But the Leafs have Brandon Pridham and a pretty competent department, and I assume internet access to Cat Friendly. And so they've walked into this with their eyes open, I guess is what I'm saying. Now, maybe they're just being very patient with the trade market. You know, if you've got time, use it. But well, and also like another team is not going to be like, oh, okay, we'll we'll definitely give you full value for this trade that you absolutely have to make to to <laughs> yeah. ice an NHL compliant roster. At some point, the hourglass cuts the other way. Yeah, um, I I don't know. I I do. I find Dubis's whole approach here fascinating. I guess is my bottom line on this: the way he's chosen to be more aggressive in an RFA negotiation than we've really seen him be before. Not well, only in the fact that he I just mean, I, I, I guess I would push back on that because like we did yeah. see him I guess he would he was he was fairly aggressive with Nylanders in the sense of it took until December 1st yes I'm drawing inferences and you know you can say fair enough um from his statements mm-hmm. like that question about an offer sheet where he yeah, basically said true. yeah do it or his response to Lewis Gross going to the press by saying public negotiations generally don't help get things done and it was a bit <laughs> It was a bit pointed. <laughs> well, it's also a little bit funny, given the Marner negotiation. Yeah. But Which, by contrast, with William Nylander, almost every statement Dubas gave was, we really like him. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's it. I also noticed that he's put a situation together where he genuinely doesn't have to worry too much if this doesn't work out. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is also why... Sandine has like zero leverage for even less than Nylander did um, yeah. because the Leafs clearly needed Nylander to be a great team yeah right like the Leafs clearly needed this first line quality winger to play on their second line and like that's a huge we've talked about this so often like that is what makes the Leafs the Leafs yeah right I, I mean I'm really what makes the Leafs the Leafs is like even the, the, the first line players playing on their first line are better than almost any other team as well but like the idea of where we have this incredibly talented second line that's just going to run you over which was also a bit of a problem last year we'll get to that um like that's a huge part of how the Leafs are contenders in theory and it's a huge part of how the Leafs power play which is supposed to be a huge threat that bolsters them at all times is supposed to be a huge threat in theory um so the Leafs clearly needed Nylander the Leafs don't clearly need Sandine to be the best team or to be the best version of themselves it would help absolutely but Rasmus Sandin is probably not the difference especially in the current role that he's in between the Leafs being contenders and not 
the truth is, is that Nylander always had, as you say, in his back pocket, okay, you're really going to regret it if I sit out the whole year. You can make the playoffs without me, but you're going to want me for the playoffs. And it didn't end up mattering too much, but uh, that was the thinking. If Rasmus Sandin says, okay, fuck this, I'm playing in Europe all year, the Leafs can't afford to do basically what the Edmonton Oilers did with Jesse Puglia-Yarvey and say, okay, see you in a year. And Puglia-Yarvey ended up coming back to the organization after that um, dispute because he didn't have a ton of other options and he wanted to play in the NHL. And I've given Ken Holland a hard time on this podcast in the past, but he handled the Puglia-Yarvey situation with complete patience and probably correctly. Um... The Leafs can, if they absolutely have to, say to Sandin the same thing. Like, look, we have six NHL-caliber defensemen. We have Victor Mete and Jordy Ben to play as our 7-8 types. And whatever you think of them, they can do that. Um, see you later. Victor Mete's arguably better than Morgan Riley. <laughs> so, I've, so I've been told. <laughs> I've seen tweets. But, uh, yeah, so the Leafs really hold all the cards here except the fear that they will alienate Sandine and miss out on a ceiling raising player. Yeah, that that's that's really the the caveat here for the Leafs. So that that's really, you know, the downside for the Leafs. You just don't want to steward your relationship with talented young players. And again, we've emphasized this. We don't I don't think and I don't think you think this either. I don't think the Leafs are are at that point here. No. But it's just worth keeping in mind. No. And you know if this stretches into the season, that one really starts to complicate the uh, the cap mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, really, they can they can do this about as well up until the day before the regular season as they can at any previous point. So that's fine. You know, they might still have to make a trade, but that would be the case anyway. But it starts getting a lot more difficult uh, as the season gets rolling. Um, but beyond that, they can afford to be pretty patient here. And if... Again, the cap consequences are kind of beyond my can be on a certain point because normally this stuff gets resolved. But I, I think that there's really not a lot of weight here and they've decided to to lean on that. They've said, okay, we are going to come out of this with the deal that we want, not the deal that you want because we hold all the cards. So, yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next thing we want to discuss was the Leafs um, sort of never-ending hole at second line left wing, and I guess the second line generally. So, I mean, I just talked about, okay, you know, the theory of the Leafs is we have these two amazing lines and they are going to run you over. And that, I think, is a valid theory of the Leafs. It's not exactly how things shaked out last year. What shaked out is we have this amazing first line, which you are going to die facing, and we have depth that slows the game down and actually I think outscored their their competition as well and then we have the second line which appears to be floundering terribly and I should be careful in how I say this or like precise in how I say this um this was that's the story in terms of like kind of goals for and against when you look at the second line and of course much was made about the struggles of John Tavares and William Nylander at various points last year especially at even strength um their on ice stats in terms of like Corsi and expected goals were very very good uh there were times where it got worse they started off really strong and then they had kind of a rough stretch in the middle of the year i think like around game like 40 to 60 and they were genuinely like pretty not great in that in that time both in terms of the goal results they saw and 
the expected goals in Corsi and like just driving play generally. It felt like they couldn't stay in the offensive zone against strong competition. And then they were broken up for the latter 20 games of the year and then for the playoffs as well. It became more of a mix and match system with Neander playing nominally on the third line, but playing a handful of minutes with Tavares and then usually like finishing games, especially in close games with like Tavares, Kerfoot, um, Neander if we were trailing and like Tavares, Kerfoot, Mikheyev if we were leading. Mm-hmm. So this is like a problem for the Leafs in, in, in the sense of, you know, there is a reasonable chance we saw just the best year that Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner will have. Not because I think they're in decline or anything, but just like they had a really, really good year. Uh, and the plexiglass principle is, is a generally good rule of thumb. When someone has a career year, you should not think, oh, that's going to just happen forever. There should be some expected reversion towards the mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Leafs really do need that second line to play well and not just play well in terms of getting lots of chances and shots when they're on the ice but they really need them to actually just outscore their competition right like it, it's it's sort of a lame excuse in some ways to be like oh you know their on ice shooting percentage was 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 bad and that's true and i fully accept that some of that is like luck but it's also we're paying you know Tavares a lot of money we're playing Lelander a lot of money because in theory they are good shooters and they can you know help elevate that so that that's like a really important thing um for 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 the Leafs going forward uh there's also the part I am sympathetic to is like they their on ice goal stats were kind of sewered by a really really terrible on ice save percentage and I buy that maybe some of that is earned because neither Tavares nor Nylander are great defensive players but looking at the Leafs goalies last year I mean that's just (laughs) I'm not I'm, I'm blaming Jack Campbell for that more than I'm blaming John Tavares yeah, I mean, if you really want to blame Peter Morazic, um, mm. when Tavares was on the ice with Morazic, uh, he had 53% of the expected goals and 38% of the goals that actually took place. And having watched Peter Morazic last season, I am willing to pin a lot of the blame on the goalie on that one. Mm-hmm. On a related note, um, I just think that before we get into wingers and forward combinations, it is worth noting defense uh correlates there because when Tavares was on the ice with Justin Hall shit went real bad for him in terms of goals like they had less than 35% of the goals even though their on ice stats were not great but a hell of a lot better than 35% yeah and we talked about this a lot last year with like the struggles of Muzzin and Hall where it's like they looked really bad but their on ice numbers were fine and it it just maybe it, it was hard to separate out there's these plays that just look really bad that end up in the back of our net with those plays might have happened anyways, and in many years, they just don't end up in the back of the net and we forget about them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Hall and Muzzin had this excruciating start to the year, where for a couple of months, they were a little bit off to my eye. Um, and, and this is the weakness of the eye test, is you think every result is deserved for the most part. But it did seem to me like they were making mistakes that that did lead to goals, but it was at such an insanely disproportionate rate. Like one early podcast last season, we looked at their on-ice goals for, and it was like 20. Like they were just getting shelled in a way that no two NHL defensemen are really going to sustain. And if I'm trying to be optimistic about John Tavares, I say that that may have just been a bit of a blip or a cold funk, or something like that, but that probably isn't what we expect from him going forward. I do think that tales of John Tavares' decline were greatly exaggerated. 
Yeah, um, I, mean, I in think my opinion. I think that's a valid argument. I mean, you look at again, you look at things like RAPM and whatnot, and even defensively, Nylander and Tavares look about average, and then their offensive impact is like really large. The big issue is that when it looks at actual goals, both their goals for impact was significantly less than their expected goals for impact, and their goals against impact was significantly worse than their expected goals against impact. The latter, I, I am more comfortable saying that's you know goaltending and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The former's is just a problem, though. Because, again, like we've talked about this every year with Enander. That's just who he is at this point. He looks better by expected goals than by goals. And that's mm-hmm. it's a weird thing, despite, because despite him being himself a good shooter, and despite Tavares having you know good shooting years in, in, in the past and Enander being a good passer, it's just been rare for Enander's lines when he's been on the ice, with the exception of when he's been with Austin Matthews in their sophomore year in particular to really outshoot their expected goals. Mm-hmm. And that puts a cap on how good... Like, base, basically, that is the... From a mechanical perspective, in terms of, like, how, how you value players, and uh, that is really the difference between Mitch Marner and William Neander, I think. Like, the defense is, is a part of it, but by far the biggest thing is that Marner's lines tend to outshoot their expected goals, and Neander's lines do not. That is the entire difference between them. Neander's arguably better at play driving, in mm-hmm. terms of, get, like, at least in how, the, how it appears... Uh, he he is in terms of generating shots and chances for his team, but they just don't go in enough. Yeah, I, I mean, there's also the question of how much of the difference between Mitch Marner and William Nylander is just Austin Matthews, and I don't think that's the whole story, but I think it's a I factor. Think it's par- I think it's part of it, but like <laughs> yeah. Ma- the Matthews-Marner combination has been better than the Matthews-Nylander combination. Like I think, in isolation, yeah. that, that doesn't mean it's always necessarily the best idea to play them together. I think it's very obvious that there is some level of pleasing Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner in, in putting them together and like not really wanting to separate them. Yeah, um, I mean they were so good last year with punting yeah. that like obviously that's going to continue until it gets worse. Yeah, it, it was undeniable. So, but yeah, like this is this is sort of this Tavares Nylander combination. The Leafs sort of do really need it to work. And again, I do want to point out that trend was a little concerning. We're talking, when you look at their numbers over the season, again, if we were looking at this from like, the perspective of some random team, like this is the, uh, some people on the Minnesota Wild, we look at them over the course of the season, we're like, oh, these, number, these guys' numbers are fine. They're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is probably true, but there was some concern and some valid concern about the trend towards, like, and how it progressed during the year. Because they did get significantly worse for a pretty prolonged period of time. Yeah. And, and as we said at the top of the segment, the theory of the Leafs is the top two lines put up margins and the bottom two lines cause nothing to happen. And that probably will be even more the case this year um, with Ilya Mikheyev gone. Now, you could say, look, last year you didn't expect Ilya Mikheyev to score as much as he did. So this theory was the same. But yeah, I like you need Nylander and Tavares to put up more goals than their opponents by a lot by a meaningful amount because even if the third and fourth lines have like a 51 percent goals for which would be terrific um they're not doing it on a massive volume Mm -hmm. so yeah i think the question becomes what do you prioritize in trying to fix tavara's kneelander assuming you keep them together which i think they will i think you sort of have to at least at the start just because it's like like, what are we doing here otherwise? Because any, yeah. any other combination, we're, like, not playing either Tavares or Nylander enough, basically. And that's even more obvious when you don't have someone like Mikheyev who 
who played at a very high level last year. So it's like, well, if you know you weren't losing as much if Nylander was your fifth or sixth highest played forward with Mikheyev playing higher. Like I think it's still a bad idea because Nylander's better than Mikheyev, but Mikheyev was playing well enough last year that you didn't feel it as much. But like, you know, in this case, if you're playing like Kali Yarncroke more than William Nylander, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's going to be an issue. Yeah, that's not what you want to do. And right. John Tavares in Long Island uh, could carry two fairly middling wingers who were maybe not that much better than Kali Yarncroke. Um to be a successful top six line. I don't know if he can do that anymore. I said decline was exaggerated. I didn't say it hasn't happened. So, yeah, I, I do think that it's going to be blank Tavares Nylander on the second line. At least, at so, least initially. I, I think if it yeah. doesn't work, they're going to get moved around. But, like, I think you kind of have to start them. You have, you have to give them that chance, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it's that. clear that the best version of the Leafs has that line working well. And playing, you know, playing a lot. Yeah. And so the question becomes, okay, what do you do there? Do you want someone who is a good supporting offensive player who can kind of do a little bit of everything, who has a track record of point production intent? Or do you want someone more defensive? Do you want someone who's covering for what Tavares and Elander are presumably not that great at? Or whatever else? Do you just want someone who's shown a bit of finishing talent because you say, well, look, that's Tavares and Elander. Someone ought to be putting the puck in the net a little bit extra. I think you could go a lot of different ways here. And Keith has tried different things while seeming to come back to Kerfoot in the end every single time. Yeah, well, and in fairness, I think that line, again, did have good on-ice numbers last year with the exception of goals. And in prior years, that line was very, very good, actually. Uh, Kerfoot, Tavares, Nienander. Like, I think I, I might be misremembered, but I, I thought they had like very good numbers. Uh, not last year, but the year prior. So, yeah, like, I, do, I think that the, it makes perfect logical sense. And if Kerfoot isn't traded... Yes. That's my, my bet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's boring. And a lot of people turned on him very hard because he had a couple of bad gaffes in a critical playoff game. That's kind of the sport. He's fine. Like, I don't know that anyone below him on the forward depth chart has more offensive ability than he does. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Slim pickings pretty quick, and, and we should explicitly talk about Nick Robertson here a little bit. I don't think Nick Robertson is going to take that job. He Like, it's a fun answer, but, like, he has to take the job. Yeah. Right? And that just seems kind of a big ask for him. Yeah, especially considering that he's still waivers exempt. Like, a lot of other guys have to clear. He doesn't. He doesn't have a great case to play down the lineup you know like if he takes the bull by the horns and then goes out and seems to hold the promise of being a 20 goal guy or better then sure but yeah as you say he has to take it and grab it it can't fall to him by default because the default is probably Alex Kerfoot yeah like Robertson would need to be comfortably the best option of like anyone in the bottom six or any any of like the non-star Leafs forwards um, in preseason in order to take the job. And even then, he might still not get it. Yeah. Like, you can easily see Sheldon Keefe looking at someone like Kerfoot or Callie Yarncroke or even Nicholas Abe Kubel. Um, or, or even Engvall. Yeah. Uh, like, because we, we, saw, we saw them play Mikheyev with that group. And I, I often didn't like the fit to my eyes. 
and it mm-hmm. felt like there's a lot of times where plays just died on McKay of stick because that's not his best talent but again that looked really good by the numbers yeah and Pierre Engvall feels like he does the same sort of thing at times every now yeah. and then he'll lob a shot from the other side of space but uh, I think he established himself a little bit last year and he did score 15 goals well look at this group scoring 15 goals is not a guarantee for pretty much anybody here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I can certainly see a case for a lot of different players. Engvall, Engvall feels like a real rush player, um, which Nylander can do. I think John Tavares feels a little bit more cycle-based, and the Leafs' top line is very much cycle-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Do I wonder a little bit about the fit there? You know, was John Tavares left playing catch-up while the other two guys rushing into the zone? I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, and you can also say Engvall might help the defensive conscience of the line because he is good defensively. Yeah, and some a lot of... He's like that, that condor wingspan that, mm-hmm. you know, can help disrupt a lot of plays. Yeah. Like, you can definitely talk yourself into it. Uh, Kelly Yarncroke, you can say, like, look, this is a an experienced player who's versatile, who can probably fit to requirements. And maybe at some point we'll finish at a high enough rate to make this worthwhile. Um, you Yarn- can talk yourself into all of these without being excited about any of them. <laughs> yeah. Yarn Croak is like kind of a big deal this year as far as the Leafs go, just because, I mean, we signed him to a four-year deal and yeah. he had a pretty bad season last season by the numbers. So yeah. the, Leafs, the Leafs have to be relatively convinced that that wasn't real. Because, I mean, normally you see, like with Jake Muslin, for example, you see like someone in their 30s take a big step back. You're like, okay, well, I mean, that could be just a random bad year because hockey's weird. Or that could be they lost a quarter of a step and that's the line between a good NHL player and a not good NHL player. Yeah. Like, Callie Yarncroke by AAV was the big signing this offseason. And... By term, too. Like, they they made a real bet on a guy who's going to turn 31 in a week. And, you know, I I like Kelly Yarncroke as a player, but we said this in our pod reviewing the Leafs signing, saying, this does have downside risk here. Like, they made a bit of a counterintuitive bet um, that a guy just isn't declining. I don't know. I hope that that's, uh, that that's borne out. Uh, by events because yeah this could be a, a bit yeah maybe they also feel it'll be like pretty tradable like as long as he's not terrible it'll be pretty yeah. tradable in like two years still but but if he is terrible then it won't be yeah <laughs> like if he if, yeah. like if he's if he's like a league minimum player in two years then like teams aren't plan- like you have to give up an asset to get rid of that and like probably not a a first round pick but probably not a bad asset either yeah, I mean, I think the way you talk yourself into it is always, well, we uh, we know the market. We had to offer him this to win the bidding war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so someone thought he was worth close to this. But yeah, also he has a 10-team no-trade clause because if you don't give anyone a no-trade clause, I guess you don't win these bidding wars. But like, Imagine how bad it must feel as an agent if you don't get a no-trade clause from Dubas. Like, do you just quit? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, David Kampf doesn't have one, except now I'm like, don't ever trade him. So, <laughs> man, I, I he's grown on me a lot. Maybe that's a good reason for optimism, actually. You know, I'm I'm kind of... Yeah, 
hemming and hawing about the signings. Well, I was cautious about David Kampf. Well, I, I think I think that's, be great. that's the point we made last, or when we talked about Yarncroke too, where it's like, this is a similar signing to, to Kampf. Kampf didn't have an amazing statistical profile in Chicago. It was fine. We joked that mm-hmm. like we got the shutdown center on the worst defensive team in the league. Yeah. Right. Which, um, which was objectively funny to do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but yeah, he turned out to be fine. And Michael Bunting, I think... We were certainly favorable on that. Oh, Michael no, yeah, we, we like Bunting. We like that. But I didn't expect him to put up 61 points. No. So. I don't think yeah. I don't think Bunting did, especially because it wasn't clear he was going to play with uh, Matthews Marner. We... No, well, it looked like it was going to be Nick Ritchie, and then Nick Ritchie fumbled the bag to a spectacular extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so I, I think it, to me, I break down this derby as Kerfoot is the default choice. And it's boring, but if he doesn't get traded, yeah. I would still bet on that happening. At least to start, I think it's going to yeah. mix and match. But like, really, we do we do need that line to like score some goddamn goals, please. Yeah, like, <laughs> like somebody's like, got to put the puck in the net. The puck just has to go in a little more. I wish I had better analysis than that. Um, yeah. But like, they they keep getting chances and they keep don't going in. Yeah, and I guess I would say, look, Engvall is defensive. He'll probably be on a defensive third line. Um, Adam Gaudet, I don't think is worth a thing. Joey Anderson, probably going to lose on waivers, to be honest with you. And I, the only other name that really jumps out to me is um, Nicholas Albekubel, I think would be played above his pay grade, frankly. Like, he's a yeah. good forechecker. He's a very good forechecker, but he doesn't he doesn't have, like, a ton of skill or ability to move the puck, I don't think. Or no, finish. Like, like, he's he's a good fourth liner. Yeah, like, Zach Hyman got tagged this way, but then proved that he was able to swim at that level. Most players don't. Yes. Um, and the only other thing I can say is, just as a parting note on the Yarncroke thing, maybe we were a little bit concerned about the length of this contract. We're saying, okay, the Leafs are putting more faith in him than his last year would seem to warrant. Maybe one of the things they hope for out of him is that he could shuffle up to the second line when required. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, Yeah. Yarn, uh, it's worth mentioning. Yarncrook was like a genuinely good player. Uh, at, yeah, uh, you know he he's had he's had very good years before. Yeah, so let's hope he repeats one of them. And yeah, you can La- see just... last year was not one of them, but <laughs> yeah, no, last year was bad, and we're just going to ignore it. But yeah, but... you can see when you survey this group, it's mm-hmm. like you see what Nick Robertson is up against. Yeah, and I think people like the idea of it, but it's like it's going to be tough, especially yeah. for a guy who hasn't gotten his shot off fast enough at the NHL level when that's his calling card. Mm-hmm. You also don't have to go back very far, just on yarn croak. You don't have to go no. back very far to find like, a good season. Like, 2021 was a good season, like so, right? And, yeah. and and he was, like, around average the seasons before that. So that's fine. Um, he was consistently, like, a good 6-7 forward for several years. Not yes. that far on the rearview mirror. Yep. Um, other thing worth mentioning, Zach Aston reese was signed on a PTO. I don't think we've discussed this before. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear he's going to get a contract. You think so? I do. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... I mean, we're not going to break the bank for him, but, like, maybe this is my bias here. I like Aston Reese. He's one of those guys who has, like... He's he's an incredibly one-dimensional player, but that one dimension is defense. Yeah. And I think he just fits with what the Leafs are trying to do. Like, if, if you're trying to build a shutdown third line, I think it's hard to find a better candidate for that than Zach Aston Reese. I agree with you. I actually would like to note when we did our league survey pod and we talked about the Anaheim Ducks and how they'd let Zach Aston Reese go, you said we should get Zach Aston Reese. And because Kyle Dubas listens to our podcast and does the things that we say, he uh, saw <laughs> he offered Zach Aston Reese a PTO. 
Um, so yeah, our influence is undiminished. I do <laughs> think I agree that it would make a lot of sense. My only pause is, wow, gee, there are a lot of names. I mean, that's always the case though, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And the also like, the truth is Wayne Simmons on talent probably shouldn't be on the roster I, anymore, but yeah, on status, I, he is. I, so. I kind of hope Simmons, I, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I hope Simmons plays well. That's number one. Yeah. If he doesn't play well, I kind of hope he gets press boxed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, you know, and take him, you know, in and out, play him a little bit. By all means, let's. Yeah, let's yeah we, we, can, we can cycle. Downward. Yeah, it's just yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Also, I think it would be better for the games that he did play because, like, the guy is 34. He's had a tough career. It's like you might get a lot more out of him even on a rate basis just playing him, like, 30 games than you would trying to force him into 80. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I agree. Joey Anderson is also sort of interesting. I mean, I so Joey Anderson was the return in the Andreas Janssen trade. Yeah. Um, and I forget how he did with, like, the Marlies last year, presumably he played with the Marlies. But I remember being like sort of into the idea of, of of Anderson because he spent some time in one of those New Jersey like you know end of year quasi tanks, mm-hmm. um, where he played actually like a legit role for such a young guy. Like he wasn't super sheltered, and he did like okay in that position from what I remember. So he also has maybe some utility. But again, like it's kind of it odds are a little bit stacked against him just because there are a bajillion other names almost all of whom have more NHL experience than him. Yeah, and he's not waivers exempt, I mm-hmm. want to note, which leads to the possibility that if he's good but not quite good enough, uh, he will be lost on waivers. And I will allow a little bit of center of the universe paranoia here and say that playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs and being almost but not quite good enough seems like a great <laughs> way to get claimed on waivers, especially by the Vancouver Canucks. Um, I mean, I think there is something to that. It, it, it's the same with, like, other in other sports, you know, Lakers bench guys get more press than a, other teams, right? So it's like they're just better scouted. So, it, you know, if yeah, if a team—I don't think it's like, oh, a team is going to take Joey Anderson even though they think he's, like, only okay um, just despite the Leafs. But I think it's more that everyone on the Leafs gets re- relatively well scouted. So if a team sees someone they like— there's like a decent chance like they have a relatively low error bars on someone they uh, on the Leafs it's like oh okay that we know that guy's pretty decent we can pick him up because we're like familiar with him because they play on the Leafs and we've seen them a bunch and like we hear about them all the time and we've looked into them yeah definitely there's an information availability bias there so yeah I mean Kyle Dubas has done this every single year and I think Lou Lamorello was even doing it before Kyle Dubas took over which is stimulate competition at your forward spots throw a ton of guys into the mix and let the cream rise to the top. And it's been a decent strategy. I think it's, you know, it's one of the, the yeah. it's one of the yeah. things you should do if you're the if you're running a rich team and you can pay all these guys the same amount whether they're in the AHL or not. Yeah. It's you know, for all that the Leafs have gotten a little bit slagged for being a top heavy team. I, I mentioned this on Twitter and someone said, hey, you know, they've consistently found some pretty decent supporting forwards. Um Bunting, Kampf, Engvall, uh, t- to name a few. And yeah, like this is kind of how you do it. So you throw a few names into the mix and every now and then one of them overachieves for you. So yeah, it's just, there are only so many chairs and the music will stop eventually. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, um, last topic, which should be relatively fast, is the goaltending battle slash is there a goaltending battle? Um, I don't have a ton to say on this, but basically the, the Leafs have multiple options in net uh, to start the year, to be the you know game one starter. Neither of the options appear to be great, which is a problem from what I know of hockey. Um, but, I'm no you know, scientist. But. Yeah, <laughs> putting that aside. Um, yeah, like, I mean, that, that's a bit harsh because... You can talk yourself into these options, but anyways, Matt Murray's the presumptive starter. I'm sort of operating under that assumption until told otherwise. I am curious how long his leash is. Um, I am curious what happens if, for example, Murray performs okay in like four preseason games and then Samsonov like has three shutouts in four preseason games. Do we still just start Murray? Like we probably should. Like, I mean, you're, you're updating on goaltenders probably shouldn't be that fast, mm-hmm. right? So if you think Murray is better then Unless like there's a absurd talent different or absurd result differential in preseason, you probably still just want to start Murray. But I, I guess I I think this is just something to keep watch of. Yeah, I think the reality is the way the Leafs pursued Matt Murray implies that they think that he's pretty good. Operating under that assumption, it should be hard to overturn that thought process. I can't imagine it's impossible. This is not Henrik Lundqvist we're talking about, where we're going to trust that he's going to regain his form. But I think that, yeah, he has a leash that extends at least into the season itself, I think. Like, your game one starter is very probably Matt Murray, I would say, if they're both healthy. You know, not guaranteeing it, Samsonov could steal the job, but, like, if I were a betting man. Um... I wanted to make one other note about the goaltending. We talk about, uh, you know, trying to abstract ourselves a little bit emotionally from the Leafs and instead of just operating on feeling, uh, operate based on just our detached analysis of, of the team. And as we've noted, it somehow helps to pretend that this is the Minnesota Wild, who are the team that are the hardest to have any feelings about in the NHL. And so if this were the Minnesota Wild, and I just did not have any investment one way or another in their performance, I would look at this and say, there's real downside risk here. Like the bottom could absolutely fall out of the tub here. And then everything is going wrong. But the median result is that the Leafs get good enough goaltending from somewhere to finish seated in the, in the Atlantic. And I try to remind myself of that. Like, look, the most likely thing is that it's good enough at least for the time being. And then when the playoffs start, who knows who's good enough. So, yeah, I think that I have a bad feeling that goaltending is going to take up a lot of oxygen throughout this season. I mean, that would suck because does. we also have like very little to say about goaltending, which is yeah, <laughs> which is an us <laughs> problem more than anything. But it's just like, uh, you know, goalie make save. Sometimes goalie don't make save. <laughs> Yeah, like, and I, I have noticed some people who even are purportedly goalie experts who sometimes seem to me to be whistling Dixie a little bit. So there's a lot of noise. I don't know if there's a lot of light, but one way or another, I'm hoping and suspecting the Leafs will get decent goaltending. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're um, going to do a bad take of the week. Yes, yeah, we, we like to bring these back every so often. It's hard to find... We were talking about this, you know, before going on the air. Like, It's hard to find good, bad takes. It is. You see, because if we just set the bar at somebody on Twitter says something stupid, 
Um, that's really easy. You can find someone with 12 followers who thinks that, I don't know, Curtis Lazar is going to score 55 points this year or something like that. It, it kind of goes with the territory that there will be people always having takes. It is the take machine. However, sometimes people in positions of prominence have these weird takes and sometimes their takes are kind of influential even if they're sort of bad, which I think is the case here. And so this was a tweet from Greg Wyshynski. I should say in fairness, Greg Wyshynski has a couple of times posted stuff that I wrote um, to Puck Daddy or his blogs or now at ESPN. And boy howdy, he has circulation because the views on the article went way up. Uh, and I am grateful for that. But he made this argument and it made me annoyed. And so in the service of content, I have to quote it to all of you. Quotation marks. Ads on jerseys, the NHL has gone too far, close quote. He says, while sitting in Bell Center, watching a game with ads on the ice boards and more CGI onto the rink, with players rocking helmet ads, waiting to see the RBC game-winning goal scored and the Crypto.com first star of the game revealed. So this is a shot at people who don't like ads on jerseys, and the argument appears to be that there are ads everywhere else in the game, so what are you complaining about? And this argument is silly. Yeah, I mean, just to start, I, the people complaining about ads on jerseys probably also complained about each of those other previous steps. Yeah. Right, if, it's, not, it's not like inconsistent. Yeah. yeah, if that guy was like, I'm naming this arena the Bell Center, a decision that rests with me and I've made a choice to make, then yeah, I guess that's a bit weird. But fans don't get to make any of those decisions. These things happen at the behest of the league. Um, furthermore, jerseys are a representation of your loyalty to a team. I'm not a huge jersey guy, but that's what they're for. It's not like I'm just wearing a shirt from Source by Circuit City. People are meant to have sentimental affection to the logo, to the uniform. They feel about it a way that they don't feel about most businesses. That's the whole point of sports. Yeah, it's also worth noting, like, sports, it's like a big business. It's like, a you know, build, even the NHL, the fourth biggest of the big four North American sports organizations, is a billion-dollar organization. But sports, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a business, right? We talk about sports a disproportionate amount relative to, like, I don't know, the 200th most valuable company in the world, which is probably some aluminum machining company that makes a bunch of things that are used in industrial processes, but no one cares about them. Like yeah. there, there, there's a bajillion companies or organizations that are like do way more in terms of like revenue or like are just much bigger than sports leagues, but we don't talk about them at all and we, because sports leagues have this hold on us emotionally. Yeah. And if you cheer for just a company, the way that people cheer for sports teams, you're either one of those reply guy weirdos who loves Elon Musk or you're on LinkedIn too often. Either way, it's bad. Sports normally speak to our emotions, speak to something sentimental, a sense of group identity or adrenaline or excitement or whatever the hell else. And that's why they're tied to locations to make that connection even more clear. If it, if it was just, you know, I don't know, the, if, if it was just a sports team that was associated with no place in particular or, or just like, you know, just some guys like, hey, this is Joe's sports team. Yeah. Right? Well, like, you know, unless I really, really like Joe, <laughs> I don't like, I'm probably not going to care so much about that but when it when you explicitly tie it to like this is the Toronto sports team owned by Joe 
Yeah. Right? It's like, okay, well, I, I forget the owned by Joe part. I'm like, oh, that's Toronto. I like Toronto. I want them yeah. to do well. Right? So, like, that emotional connection is, like, a huge... It is, like, the fundamental reason why people care about sports. Like, sports are fun to watch, but if you don't have, like, a rooting interest in them, they are significantly less fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, even if I just move past all of that, and it's just people saying, hey... I don't like this thing. Even from the perspective of a business, when you're the customer, you get to say, hey, I just don't like this thing. It doesn't matter if I'm consistent or not. All I literally have to do is say, this doesn't look as good to me as it did before. That's a deterioration in the product to me. Um, I don't like at all the idea that people are being stupid for just preferring things to look a certain way, especially when that clashes with the kind of sentimental interest that is at the core of sports. There's no w reason why this makes people dumb or hypocritical, in my opinion. Just not liking ads on jerseys. Which, by the way, I didn't even really care about. But it annoys me when people try to dunk on people who do care about it. Because it makes as much sense as anything else to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I just, I found that kind of condescending. And, by the way... The ads on Jersey side is going to win because, as this tweet has referenced, ads tend to win. They spread everywhere. They make money. Um, people do like making money, but no one has to be psyched about it, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I think in general, it's condescending is a good word for just the idea that's like you're a loser for caring about this thing. It's yeah. like, this is something I feel generally, it's very easy and in some cases, very justified to be cynical about the world. Yeah. Right? So, like, shaming people for saying, hey, I don't like this or I care about this, which is like, yes, this thing is objectively silly. It is not a crime against humanity that the Leafs will probably put a logo on their jersey in the next five years. Yeah. Um, a corporate logo on their jerseys. But, you know, it, it doesn't... Like, I think it, it's sort of shitty to just to tell someone who cares about that it's like oh you shouldn't care about that like that's a dumb thing to care about yeah or like, like or you're, or you're dumb because for, we yeah. care about something that doesn't really matter yeah exactly yeah so okay cool um so that's all we have for this week you can catch all of mine and fuleman stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at fuleman thank you for listening we'll see you soon